Well, good morning. It's great to see you all this morning. Uh, my name is Bryce Hales. I'm the pastor here at Resurrection OC. And uh, I'd like to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3. If, uh, if you don't have a Bible with you or, or on your phone, there's a blue Bible on the ground near you that you can uh, uh, follow along in. And in those Bibles, Revelation chapter 3 is on page 1030, or you may uh, obviously just listen as I read God's Word. But let me encourage you, or let me invite you to stand with me if you're able and willing to stand as we give our attention to God's Word this morning. We are... Uh, finishing our series looking at these seven uh, letters that Jesus uh, dictated to uh, seven churches in Asia Minor at the end of the first century. And Jesus uh, writes the, the final letter, the seventh letter to the church in Laodicea. So listen to God's word as I read it in Revelation 3, starting in verse 14. Jesus says, And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are, neither hot, you are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. To those whom I love, I reprove, those, those whom I reprove, excuse me, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Oh God, would you be with us now and help us uh, in these moments to uh, hear what your Spirit is saying uh, to your church, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated, please. Well, it's been a birthday season at our house over the last uh, month or six weeks. We have this season in our family where uh, a bunch of birthdays line up in a row. It was um, my, my mom's birthday was about a month ago, my sister's birthday, and then my, uh, my second son's birthday was a week or so ago. My wife's birthday was yesterday, and my birthday is next month. It's tomorrow, but it's next month. Um, and so we're in this season where we're celebrating and we're doing these parties and there's all a variety of parties, but one of the topics of conversation that keeps coming up over and over is what do you want? <laughs> what do you want for your birthday? What is it that you're hoping for? And uh, that, I think, is the question that is posed to us by the letter to the church in Laodicea by Jesus. What is it that you want? What do you want? What are you looking for in life? What are you working for? What are you striving for? Uh, not just for your birthday, but in life. Jesus' letter to the church in Laodicea 
uh, is remarkable. And it's remarkable for a couple of reasons. First, it's remarkable because uh, it's, it's not really good news, is it? As we uh, listened just a moment ago, uh, Jesus doesn't say anything positive about this church. And I think tragically, it's remarkable because it, 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 Jesus is speaking to a church that um, lives in a place very similar to where we live. Um, it's, it's remarkable, all seven of these letters that we've looked at over the last couple of months, uh, written in AD 96, you know, 2,000 years ago, are incredibly relevant to our life in the 21st century. Um, and there's always, I feel like every week, been this temptation to say, this church describes us. Um, I think Laodicea is a description of, uh, of the place that we live. Um, Laodicea is very much like Southern California. Laodicea was a affluent, wealthy city. It was probably the, the wealthiest of the, uh, the, the, the cities in Asia Minor, this province or state that Jesus is addressing in Revelation 2 and 3. Uh, the church in Laodicea was probably the most affluent of the seven churches that Jesus addresses. It was a really cool, kind of hip, trendy place. Um, it was influential in its region and a place that kind of set the tone um, for the surrounding area, not unlike where we live in Southern California. Uh, one of the interesting features of, uh, the, of Laodicea and what Laodicea was known for, it was known for a number of things. Uh, one of the things it was known for was that, uh, I guess, farmers in the area through crossbreeding had invented a species or a I don't know if you invent a species, but had produced a species of sheep that grew black wool. And the black wool was then woven into textiles and became kind of the cutting edge uh, symbol of luxury and fashion throughout the Roman Empire. So it was this place that was kind of setting uh, the trends for what's cool, not just in their area, but throughout the Roman Empire. Um, it was a center for finance. They had a number of large and solvent banks. In AD 60, the city of Laodicea suffered an earthquake that leveled the city, and the, the uh, emperor in Rome offered assistance to the city, and the city said, thank you, but no thank you. We are okay on our own. Um, we don't need your help. They were, they were wealthy. They didn't need anything. And um, uh, Laodicea was also known, uh, it was kind of the center of, I guess, ancient ophthalmology. It was, uh, they had produced this eye salve, and you, you um, hear Jesus kind of refer to this in this letter. They produced this powder that was mixed into a salve that was uh, thought to strengthen weak eyesight. And so the irony of, of the church in Laodicea is this. Uh, Laodicea was a place that you would go to if you needed help seeing. And Jesus comes to this church and says, you are blind. Um, what was going on in this church? Why is Jesus so distraught over the condition of this church? And what can we learn from it? I want you to see both the Jesus' assessment and then Jesus' salve for this church. And so Jesus' assessment, first of all, is this. We see this really the crux of the issue in verse 17. Uh, the motto of the city of Laodicea was, we need nothing. We are self-sufficient. We are independent. We don't need help from outside. We've got it together. We don't need anything. And isn't that the cry, uh, it, it, at least the longing <laughs> that we feel in Southern California? We want to be independent. We want to be self-sufficient. We don't want to have to depend on anybody. 
the church here, the city, the church uh, became, came to reflect the city. Instead of discipling the city, the church had become disciples of the surrounding culture. And so they said, we have everything we need. We're self-sufficient. Jesus says in verse 17, you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, that you are pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. That's harsh, isn't it? But like the dentist told me this week, you have to see what's going on here in order to address the problem. It was harsh, but I needed to see it. (laughs) The tragedy of what's happening in Laodicea is this. They were not poor despite their success. They were actually poor because of their success. They were not poor despite the fact that they had been remarkably successful and everybody wanted to be like them. That's actually the very reason that Jesus said that they were poor. And I think that's a pretty good description of the time and place that we live as well. Everybody seems to sense that something in our culture has changed in the last, I don't know, 10, 15 years. You know, everybody's got a different assessment. There's, there's so many books, articles, opinions on, um, you know, what is changing in, in, in American culture. Um, it doesn't feel, you know, um, maybe success does not feel as inevitable as it did uh, for previous generations. And uh, I, I recently finished reading a book um, that I thought was really profound called Why Liberalism Failed. And it's talking about liberalism not, not like on the left-right political spectrum, not liberalism in contrast to conservatism, but essentially liberalism, which is the founding principle of America. Um, the founding principle of America, uh, liberalism is the idea that the pursuit of liberty, the pursuit of freedom, the pursuit of happiness will eventually lead to happiness and freedom for everybody. Here's, here's the thing. Um, in kind of classical culture and certainly in, in, the history of tradition, uh, in the history and tradition of Christianity, freedom, liberty was always understood as something that we had to grow into. That to be truly free means to to become the people that God has created us to be. And so for thousands of years, um, Christians have always had the sense that part of liberty and freedom uh, is the pursuit of character and virtue. That I have a a responsibility, um, not just for myself or my family, but uh, out of love for my neighbor to be a better person. I have a commitment to my community. I have a responsibility to my neighbors. That's what freedom has meant. And the founding principle of America said, no, freedom is essentially uh, casting off responsibility and restraints to do whatever you want to do. And so this book, uh, Why Liberalism Failed, is essentially saying what has changed in American culture is that this pursuit of liberty has become so successful that we are now drowning in ourselves. We are not, um, liberalism didn't fail despite its success. Liberalism failed because of its success. Um, We are in a sense living in a culture that is gorging itself to death. And the tragedy of that is this, that the church ought to be um, a breath of fresh air in a culture that is drowning in itself. And the tragedy is that the North American church in our time has come in so many ways 
to simply reflect our culture back to itself. And that's exactly what was happening in Laodicea. I mean, think about our time. We've got unprecedented resources, knowledge, innovation, technology. We leverage all that so that we can take pictures of ourselves. Um, we have the resources to end world hunger, human trafficking in our lifetime. But we live in a culture where the greatest threat to the health of middle-aged men is loneliness. We can be connected with anybody at any time, and yet we are dying of loneliness. Uh, we are drowning in ourselves. We're drowning in ourselves. We're not poor despite our success. We are poor because of our success. This is exactly what Jesus is talking about the, to the church in Laodicea here. Uh, Jesus says, and there's no other way to put this, Jesus says it makes me sick. It makes me nauseous. It's, you know, when he says, I will spit you out of my mouth. Uh, the original Greek is, you know how there's like an infinite number of ways to talk about vomiting? That's what Jesus is doing here. It makes me hurl, it makes me gag, it makes me puke. Um, it's gross. I want to throw up. Uh, and what Jesus is doing when he says that, he's picking up on another aspect of life in Laodicea. He's saying uh, the, the one thing that Laodicea lacked was a fresh source of water. Uh, There's no fresh source of water in the city. And so uh, to get water into the city, you had to, uh, in Hierapolis, which was about six miles away, there was a hot spring there. And so they piped in hot water. And from, Leo, uh, from Colossae, where there was a cold spring, they piped in water about six miles from Colossae. Um, and the Romans, you know, for the time, were, were incredible architects. And they built these aqueducts. And they piped in water six miles uh, through these stone pipes and water traveling six miles through these mineral-rich fields and stone pipes uh, arrived in Laodicea, having absorbed the minerals and uh, arrived at lukewarm temperature. And so the water in Laodicea was perfectly putrid. It was only good for inducing vomiting. And Jesus is saying, um, the uh, uh, previous... Um, I don't know, maybe a generation ago, before archaeological evidence had brought to light some of the realities of life in Laodicea. Uh, many churches and Christians believe Jesus was saying, essentially, I'd rather you were either for me or against me, and that's not what he is saying. He is saying that the church uh, cool water you know, is, is refreshing, and the church is to bring, bring refreshing to the world around it. And hot water is good for healing and to bathe in and to bring cleansing. And so the church has a, has a, a responsibility to bring healing and cleansing in the world. But Jesus is saying this lukewarm water isn't good for anything except for pumping somebody's stomach. It has become complacent and repulsive, the church in Laodicea. Jesus says, you have need of nothing and the problem is that you think that that's a good thing. And it is not a good thing. Jesus says, I love you. And because I love you, I'm telling you what's true about your condition. You know, often as a pastor, uh, I will, I did this this week, but I'll, I'll text people and say, how can I be praying for you this week? And, and it's, it's, a, it's a delight to be able to pray with you and for you. Um, the only thing I, I hate about doing that is occasionally get the response, how can I pray for you? And somebody will say, I'm okay. Really? <laughs> like, we're offering to bring your request before the throne of the living God and you don't need anything? 
And the only thing worse than not needing anything is not knowing how poor you truly are. A complacent faith, Jesus says, is nauseating. It was virtually impossible to tell the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian in Laodicea. Jesus had slowly been pushed out of the center of their lives and been replaced with things like career and exercise and children and good things, just not things that you can build a life on. Jesus says, I love you, and because I love you, I'm telling you what's wrong. Um, Christianity in Laodicea had become polite. It was offensive to no one. And it was nauseating to Jesus. But secondly, you've got to see the south that Jesus brings. Because Jesus, unique among the world religions, does not say, here's the problem, now fix it and get back to me. Jesus says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. Open the door and I will come in and eat with you. The solution to complacent, compromised, comfortable Christianity is not trying harder. It's intimacy with Jesus. Jesus says, I want to know you. I want to be with you. I want to eat with you. It's fascinating. Um, In the Bible, the last thing Jesus did before his crucifixion, before he was betrayed, was he ate with his disciples. And then the first thing Jesus does after the resurrection is they're gathered there beside the Sea of Galilee. He cooks fish and eats with them. Uh, you know, eating, especially in Middle Eastern cultures, but we understand this is, is, you know, it's a sign of friendship. It's a sign of intimacy. Come into my home. I want to share a meal with you. We want to break bread together. We want to get to know each other. We want to linger over a long meal with friends. The last thing that Jesus wants to do is shame us into behavior modification. He says, I want you to know me. This is a beautiful picture. It's a wonder that Jesus comes to us. He comes to us. He wants to know us. He wants to heal us. Jesus comes to us in order to to cast out our uh, our shame, in order to heal our guilt. The book of Revelation is telling us that our story ends at a great feast that Jesus is preparing for us even now. It's a picture of intimacy and connection. In the last several weeks, I've been struck by how many people in our own little church here are struggling and um, uh, divorce, cancer and new, new, the need for new jobs um, are pretty high on the list of, of things that we are struggling with but the thing that is consistent no matter what our needs are uh, is, is the sense of isolation you know when you need a new job because you're not making enough money that's hard but what makes it even harder is how that drives a wedge between you and your spouse you feel isolated in the midst of that. And Jesus says, I want to know you. I want to be with you. We all long to be known and accepted. We want somebody to know who we are. And knowing who we are is still want us. Jesus says, you don't have to fix yourself up. I'm here. I want to come in. So says to the church, you know, this church was hardly even a church anymore because Jesus was no longer in their presence. Jesus says, let me in. Celebrate with me. Eat with me. Know me. I know you, I want to to love you, I want you to experience who I am. But there's also a sense of urgency in Jesus' words. In verse 19, he says, Those whom I love, I discipline, so be zealous. Be zealous and repent. Be zealous. Somebody should have told Jesus that that would be the least popular thing he could probably say to Christians in the 21st century. Be zealous. Don't be zealous. 
Zealous people are fanatical. Like they're crazy. Nobody wants to be zealous. But Bishop J.C. Ryle says that... Um, he says that being zealous is about being wholehearted. It's about dedicating all that you are and all of your life to one thing. And if that one thing is a healthy thing, then your zeal for it will be healthy as well. I mean, think about like, think about like this. Do you want a surgeon who is zealous? Or do you want a surgeon who is, compl surgeon who is complacent? <laughs> do you want a pilot who is zealous? Or a pilot who is complacent? I did the safety checks last month. It'll be fine, I'm sure. Do you want a spouse who is zealous or a spouse who is complacent? Do you want a savior who is zealous or a savior who is complacent? If your zeal is for a healthy thing, then your zeal will be healthy too. Pastor Tim Keller said, how can you come to grips with someone who has given himself utterly for you without giving yourself utterly to him in response? To do anything else is not only an offense in the moral sense, it is a crucifixion of the intelligence. It is as stupid as it is wicked. So the question for us is this, how... And, and let me just be clear here. I'm, I'm, if you're here for the first time, I'm not saying this to you. This is... Um, Jesus is talking to a church here. Jesus is talking to Christians who are comfortable and complacent. And the question for us is this. How will your Christian friends, co-workers, family members take your faith seriously if you don't? We have our kids here today. How will your children take your faith seriously if you don't? You know, they will say, just like Jesus... I see your works. I see your works. I know what you say, and I see what you do, and they don't line up. This is not a call to perfection. But there is a need for urgency. There's a need for zeal. It doesn't mean you need to be like weird or angry or condemning of anybody. But there's an urgency about what God is doing in this world, and he's calling us to do it with him. That's why he doesn't just say be zealous, but he says be zealous and repent. Like, if you confessed your need for a savior with passion, that would mess people up. <laughs> be passionate and humble. So let me ask you again, what do you want what are you doing with your life? For our church, Resurrection of Sea, what are we doing here? Like, why are we here? If you look at these seven letters, these seven churches, we've been studying over the last seven or eight weeks, there's really two kinds of churches. There are churches that are experiencing persecution, suffering, pressure from the outside, and Jesus comes to comfort them and honor them and bless them. And then there are churches that are comfortable and complacent and they draw the rebuke of Jesus. There is no comfortable church that is honored by Jesus. And so guys, I hate to be the bearer of this news, but like those are really the options. It's not just true in Revelation 2 and 3. It's true throughout the course of the Bible. Like, either, there's nothing wrong with being comfortable, but being comfortable leads to complacency. 
and there are no faithful, complacent Christians. There's nothing wrong with being comfortable, but comfort leads to complacency, and the church will never be a refuge for the hurting when it is filled with complacent, comfortable Christians. And I think that presents us with a pretty clear choice. Who are we going to be? Who will we be as a church? Who will we be as Christians? Will will we be a church that squeezes Christianity around our vacation plans this summer? Will we be a church that squeezes our um, Christianity around our social calendar? Will we be a church that views loving our neighbors and serving the people of God uh, as sort of a necessary inconvenience? Or will we be zealous and humble? You know, we've got kids here today in our service because we love these kids. I've been saying this for three years. The measure of our church is not how beautiful is our worship service today, but what will the lives of these children look like in 20 years? What will the, our legacy be in 20 years when the children in the church today are in their mid-20s? And if our children grow up in homes where we pay lip service to the gospel, but Jesus is the first thing we drop whenever there's a vacation or a soccer tournament or whatever, if we spend 25 years, the first 25 years of our kids' lives, telling them that Jesus is the most important thing in their lives, but not living like it, then we shouldn't be surprised when they spend the last 75 years of their lives calling us hypocrites. That was pretty harsh. (laughs) So the choice is ours. What is our plan to help love our kids in the name of Jesus? I got a text this week from uh, somebody who's been coming to our church for a couple of months now, and he said, let's collaborate on how we can make an impact in our communities, an impact for God. Let's remind the world that there is a beautiful community in their neighborhood. Isn't that great? Like, yes, let's do that. Let's do that. Over the next several months, we're going to have all kinds of opportunities to love and serve our neighbors. Easter's three weeks away. I met a man two weeks ago who told me in 1955, somebody invited my father to church, and it was Easter. And so he went because it seemed like a decent thing to do, and he met Jesus. And that man's son, or that man has two sons, and one of them is the chancellor of a whole string of seminaries where they prepare uh, young people for ministry. And the other one, the man I was talking to, is an elder in the same church where his dad became a Christian in 1955 because somebody invited him to, to church for Easter. It's like the one Sunday a year when it might even be socially acceptable to invite your friends to church. Like, will we take up that opportunity or not? It might be a little bit awkward. It's not the end of the world. Will you be a part of this with us? Jesus says these are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Jesus is both the foundation of life and the goal of it. Life crumbles apart from him. Life makes no sense apart from him. With him, even the most ordinary moments and efforts take on cosmic significance and joy. Jesus says you have all that you need. Without Jesus, you have nothing, but with Jesus, you have everything. So what do you want? 
started our service by reading these words from Isaiah 55. Let me read these words again. Jesus says to the church in Laodicea, he references these words. He says to us, Come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. What is he saying? He's saying, you don't have the resources to provide what you need, but I have it all. So come to me and I will give you grace. And when you do, you will find what your heart truly longs for. If you have everything but have Jesus, don't have Jesus, you have nothing. If you have nothing but you have Jesus, you have everything. That's the good news. Let's pray together. Jesus, would you comfort us? Jesus, we hear your words. They are um, eye-raising in their um, assessment. And yet, Jesus, I, I don't believe that you want to spit us out. You love your people. You came to us to make yourself known to us. You lived for us and died for us. You rose again from the grave for us. Would you help us to see? Would you help us to respond? Would you give us a sense of urgency and zeal and joy? Would you be at work in us, we pray. We love you, Jesus. Amen.